Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you always help us. You know just what to do. You know how to teach us to understand your word. And your word is so important, so valuable, so life-changing. I pray that your spirit will inspire your word and change us today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We do have an overhead protector, it looks like. So we'll pause just a moment. I apologize for this. Apologize for this. All right. All right. So it's working now. Okay. Yeah, it's coming on now. All right. And let me see if I'm seeing it. I am seeing it. Um, we can, uh, let's just see how strong this is. Okay. All right. Now we'll get this all set again. All right, everything uh, everything look okay? And let's see if it's... Oops. It's uh, seeing it on the wrong one. We'll get it. Show theme, presenter, display. But I'm not seeing it here. Okay, now let's see if it works. Everything is working. Okay. The first part of Deuteronomy 6 begins by calling for careful and complete obedience to the commands of God. It contains one of the most quoted portions of the Bible, which called for parents to love God with all their hearts and soul and strength. 
The parents are told to build their lives around the Word of God. Everything they do, when they get up, the first thing they're to talk about is the Word of God. When they eat, they're to talk about it. If they're walking in the way, they're to talk about the Word of God. And it was to provide guidance for everything that they did from morning to night. They were to have God's Word constantly on their lips. And it was to provide direction and focus for their lives. As this important chapter comes to a close, it gives the automatic response from those most closely associated with those whose lives reveal the principles of God's Word. It says that you will be asked a question. Your children will ask you a question. And this is how you're to answer it. The question may be asked from frustration, occasionally from admiration. But this is the question. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes and the judgments that the Lord our God has commanded you? When your children say to you, Dad, Mom, why do we do it this way? Why do we have to always be so different from the people around us? Why are we so different from all the other families? None of the other parents make their children do it this way. Why do you always talk about God's Word? Why do we have to dress this way? Why do we have to be so different? I'm embarrassed. I stick out at school. Can't we, can't we eat like my friends? Why don't we go to movies and ball games? Why does our family have to be so strict? Then you shall say to your son, The Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God. And then I want you to read the next section to me. For our good always. That he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Paul tells us that this was the Jewish advantage. What advantage then hath the Jew? Romans 3.1 Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. They had the advantage, you see, of the law and the prophets of God. That was the Jewish advantage. It was to benefit them, to preserve them. It was the secret of their prosperity. We could ask the same question. What advantage then hath the Adventist? Tomorrow morning we're going to look at the Adventist advantage. And finally we're going to look tomorrow morning at the last one of the series, the evangelism advantage that God has given to his people. But this is what we must communicate with others, the something better that God has given to us, his people, the blessing, the reward, the profit that always attends faithful obedience to every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I remember when I was asked this question. My son Philip was 11 years old, and he took me into his room and he said, Dad, you know, our family is, well, it's too strict. I can't do what all the others do. 
And I knew this was an important, crucial time and that the answer I would give my son could determine a direction in his life work. And so I asked the Lord for wisdom how to present for my son's good always that answer. And I was reminded of the Cambodian mines. My son had just been, he was homeschooled, and he was just going through a a section where he'd learned all about the Cambodian mines. And he knew that in Cambodia at that time there were still mines strewn all over the land. And so from time to time somebody would stumble over one of those mines and think they would either be maimed or killed. And I said, suppose, Philip, that you grew up in Cambodia. And you had parents. You had parents, they loved you very much, and they said to you, Philip, we are so much thankful that you are our son. We love you so much that we want you to have freedom to just do whatever you want to do. We want you to be able to go anywhere in our land. We love you that much. And so you did. You were able to go anywhere. You didn't have to be particularly strict. But one day, you walked on one of the mines. And if you still lived, your foot was blown off or your hand. And for the rest of your life, you went around maimed. And said, maybe you had another set of parents. And these parents said, Philip, we love you very, very much. It's a very dangerous world here in Cambodia. This is a map. And in this map, there's just a narrow way, but it's been cleared of mines. And if you stay on this map and follow it, it's restricted. But it's only restricted for your good. That is why God gives us restrictions for our good always. Snow covered the ground during the winter of 1885 in the district of Voldervertel in Lower Austria when two sweethearts 40-year-old, divorced, and twice married Alois Schickelgruber and 17-year-old Clara Polzel applied for a marriage license from the parish priest. There was a problem with their application. They were second cousins, and the Bible forbids marriage between close relatives. There was other problems with it. The Bible forbade the kind of marriage because there was no biblical grounds for divorce. And it was a bad idea because of the great disparity of ages. But regardless of God's commands, in this region, intermarriage between close relatives was frequent. And disregarding the Bible's express injunction and following area custom, the priest gave them a special ecclesiastical dispensation and married them. On January 7, 1885, the couple were united in matrimony. Four years later, April 20, 
1889, their third child, Adolf, was born. Adolf Hitler. You see, a Paris priest's permission to violate God's instruction brought the world Adolf Hitler. People said, oh my, if there was a God of love, how could there be World War II? Dear folk, you can't blame God for World War II. He gave instruction that would have preserved the world from Hitler. He would never have been born. His instruction would prevent it. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. How often the greatest disasters of history have occurred because instruction in God's word has been ignored. I think of another global calamity. The year 1918 was drawing to a close, and with it the long years of World War I. The armistice had just been signed. 8,538, 315 officially had lost their lives. But the sigh of relief and the celebrations throughout the nation were premature. The swine influenza epidemic, a greater menace than the recent hostilities, threatened the war-weary world. And that winter and through the next year, it killed between an estimated low of greater than 20 million people to an estimated high of 50 million persons, more than three to four times as many as the Great War. Years later, many it did not kill developed a Parkinson-like movement disorder. Careful research has uncovered the cause of this scourge and how its present yearly cycle could be broken. They call it swine flu for a reason. It begins in the Orient, in those regions where hogs live in the houses with the people. We worry about bird flu. There's great monitoring. We could solve the problem by obeying God in the Orient. Is it just coincidence that science has rediscovered an important public health principle contained in the Bible? The warnings from science today echo the warnings of the Bible about swine. Every time the flu sweeps through our community, we should be reminded of the importance of heeding Scripture in every detail, far good always. You have heard of the new menace that is threatening this country and the world for a rapidly spreading antibiotic-resistant bacteria. That is coming from the huge hog farms in this country. My friend, Dr. Uh, uh, a physician that was a world authority on leprosy, has told me that there is evidence that leprosy was linked to swine. You see, 
God's instruction is for our good always. For many years, the church I attended in Wichita, Kansas, was involved in an effective health ministry. Many Christians, I discovered, are surprised to find out that the Bible contains a great deal of information on health. Many have no idea how much God wants them to be pain-free and healthy. Many feel that God doesn't care what they eat or what they drink. I am going to review some things that all of you, I believe, in here would know. But I want you to know these things and review these things so that you can share these important pieces of information with your friends who don't know them. God's very first instruction, when he opened his mouth to talk to mankind, do you know what his first words out of his mouth to man were? You look at it. He's talking to them about what to eat. He told them what was proper food for animals and what was proper food for man. In his... I'm sorry about that. In his very next instruction, he told them what not to eat. Some people feel it doesn't matter what we eat. Let them ask Eve if it mattered what she fixed her husband for dinner. There were not just arbitrary commands or casual information. Had God's instruction on diet been followed, there wouldn't be any disease today. But there was a tempter to draw man away from God's instruction. It was not obeyed, and disobedience brought its weight of pain and death. But God still wants man healthy. First to Adam after the fall, then to Noah at the flood, he again gave instruction on diet. But his instruction was virtually ignored. Noah himself became a drunk. Rapid misery and death shortens man's life. And Noah saw his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren sicken and die. He lived longer than any of them. He died one or two years before Abraham was born. But by the time of Moses, man's life expectancy had decreased from nearly a thousand years to a mere 70 years. To preserve the health of the Israelites in the wilderness, God controlled their diet and gave details of a healthy lifestyle to Moses. His instruction covered not only diet, but also such areas as cleanliness and public sanitation. God's directives were so effective that at the end of 40 years, there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Parents were to teach their children and grandchildren God's secrets of happiness and health. They were to explain to the children, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes for our good always, that we, he might preserve us alive as it is this day. When individuals and nations followed God's instruction, they were blessed with health. When they ignored it, they became sick. In both the Old and the New Testament, angels instructed parents on the diets of their children. 
God designed that as the health of the Jews became known throughout the world, the heathen would be led to follow the God of Israel. David prayed that thy way may be known upon the earth, thy saving health among all nations. God partially answered this prayer through faithful Israelites. Archaeologists have found that around the areas of Israel, during the years that Israel was faithful, the heathen began to get rid of swine. Very interesting. They changed their diet shortly after the invasion of Canaan. The health of the captive Daniel was an illustration to the Babylonians of the superiority of the diet God gave to Israel. In just 10 days, on a simple diet of fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables, avoiding all alcohol and flesh food, Daniel and his friends were measurably healthier than those around them. On this simple diet, with the blessing of God, Daniel and his friends graduated summa cum laude from the University of Babylon, the U of B. But it was Jesus himself who was the full answer to David's prayer, that thy way may be known upon the earth, thy saving health among all nations. When he was on the earth, he delighted to heal the sick. Multitudes of all nations sought his help, and each received full healing. The apostles continued Christ's ministry of health. The word salvation means health. Just as Christ brought health to the Israelites in the wilderness, so he brought health to the early Christian church. Health ministry was an important outreach of the early church. The record says, Also a multitude from, gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And they were, what's that next word? All healed. If you were sick at that day, the hospital was where? The church where Christians worshipped. God loves to see his creatures healthy and happy. When he created man in the Garden of Eden, there was no sickness. In heaven, God's abode, there is neither sickness nor pain. The Apostle John, who knew Jesus well and knew how much he hated to see his suffering in sickness, exclaimed, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health. But health is not a matter of chance or luck. It's not like Las Vegas, a roll of the die. It involves proper habits of life. It involves lifestyle. It encompasses the choices of what we put into our mouths. Both Paul and Peter, important spokesmen of the early Christian church, speak of the importance of temperance and self-control. Paul plainly states, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple you are, let no one deceive himself. The whole purpose in the Old Testament of the sanctuary was to illustrate certain truths. It was not an end in itself. And one of the truths was to illustrate how we were to take care of our bodies they gave great attention to the care of the temple. We are to have that kind of care. The early Christian church, guided by the Holy Spirit, instructed the converts in proper dietary principles, not as mere preference or opinion, 
But if you'll notice Acts 15, 28, and 29, it says the Spirit told them these things. These are are eternal consequences. These can never be considered optional if we want to enjoy the fullest benefit of health. Sad to say, the majority of sickness is brought on by the person who has the sickness. Not all, but the majority. Many of the common diseases from which we suffer are preventable. We think about how many cases of AIDS are prevented by lifestyle, but dear folk, so is heart attack and stroke and cancer in many cases. If you saw somebody committing suicide, if you were standing by one of these tall buildings and you saw somebody... Let's say you were at the Golden Gate Bridge and you saw somebody there ready to jump. What would you say to that person? Wouldn't you beg them not to do that? And it is our responsibility as Christians, when we understand what God has said, we must share carefully, gently, lovingly, truths with others to save their life, to save their life. Many of the common diseases are preventable. David was constrained to acknowledge, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Jesus instructed those he healed, you've been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The psalmist said, fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Fools were afflicted. The Bible calls those who disregard the laws of health fools. But even these are not out of the reach of the Heavenly Father's love. For David quickly adds, then they, that is these fools, cried out to the Lord in their trouble, And he saved them out of their distresses. Dear folk, time and time again, the children of Israel disregarded God's counsel, got themselves in trouble. But what did he do when they cried out to the Lord? Never fear to cry out to the Lord in your trouble. He saved them. Then the psalmist reveals how God gives health. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. God's word was designed as a healing manual. The Bible, the word of God written out like Christ, the word of God lived out, was sent to heal us. And it is through obedience to Christ's words that we receive health. The good news is, as soon as you're injured, healing comes. As soon as you're injured. Don't kick against the pricks, or healing can't take place. After a bitter experience at Merah, which Paul says was to serve as a lesson to Christians, Moses was told to tell the Israelites, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. 
God's promise to the Israelites of old is just as sure to the Christian today. In his word, God has given instruction to bring health and strength to his people. Paul tells us, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? To all, to the glory of God. When our lives are healthy, what does that do for the creator? Brings him glory. Now notice, notice how relevant and up-to-date the Bible's dietary instruction is. Scientists are warning us today of the dangers of animal fats. No one should be surprised about this, however. For thousands of years, the Bible has explicitly warned mankind to avoid animal fat. It was to be burned as an offering, never eaten as a food. It shall be a perpetual statute for your generation throughout all your dwellings that ye eat neither what? Fat nor blood. There's an interesting story in the Bible about a high priest, Eli. The Bible indicates that he was obese and that this was one of the causes of his death. The father's intemperance is seen magnified in the sons. What we do and excuse in moderation, our children will do in excess. He indulged himself in his children. And in uh, 1 Samuel 2, 12 through 17, and I'm just uh, reading from NIV, Eli's, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Now, notice the next verse. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first and then take whatever you want, the servant would then answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young man was very great in the Lord's sight. But animal fat was not the only dangerous item the Bible warns us not to eat. The blood was even more dangerous than the fat, and scientists have not caught up to this yet. If you want to be ahead of the curve, avoid blood. The instruction of the dangers of blood were so important that it was taught to the Gentile converts by the early Christians, Acts 15.29. In Christ's parting instruction to his uh, disciples, the Great Gospel Commission, they were told to teach everything that Christ had commanded, that is, his laws. This story of the council in Jerusalem shows us that the all things Christ had commanded included the instruction on diet found in the Old Testament. The flesh of dead animals is never ideal for humans. But just as we know that some plants are edible and some are inedible, some animals are edible as emergency rations, though most are inedible under any circumstances. Peterson's has a guide to edible and inedible plants, but the Bible is the guide for edible and inedible animals. Now, I have never tasted meat in my life. But I want to show you briefly what the Bible does say about what clean meat is because it's not well understood even by Seventh-day Adventists. 
Now, a few years ago, some of my friends thought that investing in ostriches would be a good business opportunity. Ostrich meat was being touted then as low fat. However, I was not interested in investing in this business because of information in a chapter in the Bible that all Christians should know well. That is Leviticus 11. God spells out in Leviticus 11 what flesh meats are to be avoided under any circumstances, items that should never be considered food by a Christian. This chapter was so important that God repeated it in Deuteronomy 14, and the children of Israel were to hear this every seven years. Every man, woman, and child, even Gentiles, were to hear it every seven years. Ostrich meat is one of those meats which are inedible, not healthy, not safe to eat, even if it is low-fat. Now, there's a reason for all of God's instruction. When he tells us not to eat rats, mice, centipedes, and toads, he is instructing this so that we will have health and strength. In the Bible, the emergency edible animals were called clean. The inedible animals were called unclean. The wisdom in prohibiting even touching the dead carcass of inedible animals has been demonstrated. I used to treat in Wichita, I treated meat handlers. And in pork processing plants, Meat handlers are at increased risk of disability and death from such things as brain infections. And God gave man his ideal lifestyle in the Garden of Eden. The diet God provided included the wide variety of fruits, grains, and nuts. It was a plant-based diet free of the flesh of dead animals. After the food, because of the marked change condition in the world and the difficulties in some areas to obtain sufficient quantities and varieties of fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables, small amounts of meat were permitted. But even in these circumstances, meat was limited to certain animals who could provide emergency rations. Now, in the sacrifice service, meat was also required. But I would point out that at the end of time to the New Testament, God gave us a vegetarian sacrificial service. Jews had to eat lamb. Christians drink grape juice and eat bread. God's instruction was comprehensive and global. This is the law of the animals and birds and every living creature that moves in the waters and of every creature and creeps on the earth to distinguish between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. I would point out that even instruction on meat cuts and meat preparation was given. This instruction is included in the New Testament. Any animal found dead is not to be eaten, even if it is otherwise permitted. And flesh food that is eaten within two days is approved, but anything more than two days was to be absolutely destroyed. Now, it's interesting to review the animals which are absolutely forbidden as well as those animals expressly permitted for emergency rations and ceremonial use. We can divide them into five broad categories. Large mammals, fish and seafood, fowl, insects, rodents, lizards, small animals, and snakes. If the larger mammal has split hooves and chews the cud and its fat and blood are removed, it may be eaten. Camel, rabbit, and hog are listed as examples of inedible larger animals. Any animal with paws is inedible. No lion meat permitted. Some would say, ah, good, beef is allowed. 
But most beef in the supermarket is not edible. The animal must be bled to death by slitting its throat. It cannot be strangled or electrocuted. And the meat in the supermarket, the beef in the supermarket, is not edible because it has blood. It has not been bled to death. Furthermore, it must not be more than two days from the time of butchering. If the fish has both fins and scales, it may be eaten. Such items as clams, oysters, eels, and lobsters are inedible. And that was not known early on by Seventh-day Adventists. There is no general rule for fowl, but the list of forbidden flying creatures includes birds of prey, such as eagle, hawk, kite, falcon, owls. You can uh, read them there. Um, Other categories, vulture, buzzard, stork, seagull, heron, ravens, and ostrich. It's not a bird, but the bat is specifically listed as an inedible flying creature, and all gliding animals, such as flying squirrels, are forbidden. Essentially, all insects are forbidden except the locust and grasshopper. If you're just dying to eat insects, they need to be able to fly, crawl, and leap with jointed legs above the feet. Otherwise, I'm sorry to tell you, you can't eat them. Rodents, lizards, other small animals, and snakes are inedible. Now, this instruction was given more than 2,500 years ago. Does the passage of time diminish or abolish God's instruction? Are these unnecessary, restrictive, and arbitrary rules that God imposed on those poor, unfortunate Jews who had to live under the domineering and oppressive laws of Christ? Poor Jewish people couldn't eat rats and mice and roaches. When the city of Jericho was miraculously overthrown by the Israelite army, the people were forbidden to ever rebuild the city. God declared that anyone who did rebuild the city walls would lose his firstborn son, and if he persisted in the project, his youngest. 800 years went by. Long time. The instruction was neglected and finally forgotten. Did God forget? Times change, God doesn't. Finally, there was a man named Hiel who dared to test out the truth of God's prohibition. But even though Hiel defied God's commands, either in ignorance or in defiance, he proved their truth before all Israel when he lost his firstborn and his youngest son. Like Hiel, the Bethlehemite, many today are sick and dying through ignorance or defiance of God's commands in many areas of life. Paul wrote the Corinthian believers and told them that there's sickness and even death among their number because of the way they were eating. 1 Corinthians 10.30 Now some people feel that God's instruction on diet doesn't apply to Christians and they refer to a vision God gave Peter. The story is found in Acts 10. In this vision, Peter was told to eat some inedible animals. This vision perplexed Peter for a short time, but within a few hours, he understood the meaning of the vision and explained that this symbolic vision was showing him that Gentile people would be cleansed by God and that Christians should not be racist. That's how the early church understood this vision 
and how they explained it should be how we understand and explain it today. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What's the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall tell, say to your son, The Lord commanded us to, to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. God's dietary commands are true today, just as they were several thousand years ago when they were given for our benefit. Today we hear the echo of scripture in the testimony of science. There's mounting evidence that optimal health is found in the original Eden diet, which excluded all animal products. There is now evidence that Daniel's diet is the optimal diet for students who want to have every advantage in learning. And the Eden diet is the least expensive diet. No one in North America today needs the emergency rations of flesh food. And increasing dangers are being discovered from the ingestion of inedible animals. Some of the greatest epidemics come from unclean meat. Some diseases, such as trichinosis from eating bear and pig, are well known. But other diseases should also be mentioned. In 1988, nearly 300,000 Chinese in Shanghai developed hepatitis A from clams. Serious typhoid epidemics, outbreaks of paralysis from red tides, and HIV from consuming chimpanzee meat. That's the Journal of Virology, July 2003. Gastroenteritis, blood and skin infections, cholera are documented to come from shellfish and clams. Tuberculosis, leprosy, cancer have also been associated with the inedible animals during this century. The deadly Ebola virus is now believed to have come from the consumption of chimpanzee flesh. SARS from the Himalayan palm civets and raccoon dog available from the mainland China wildlife market. And we've already mentioned the swine flu epidemic. You see, the cooks in heaven have no recipes for the flesh of dead animals. If you want heaven's cookbook, there won't be any recipes for dead animals. In the wonderful variety of delicious fruits, grains, and nuts, there's complete health. God is not being restrictive and demanding when he gives us diet prohibitions. He has something much better for his children. He wants them to have only the finest of the wheat. But there is far more than health at stake in our dietary choices. God wants us to be holy even more than he wants us to be healthy. It is for holiness that he makes his appeal at the close of his dietary instruction. There in Leviticus 11 and in Deuteronomy 14 where it's repeated. It closes with, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. You see, our diet impacts our soul. Although God supernaturally supplied the Israelites with flesh food in the wilderness, the record states he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls. Folk, it may be good to be lean in the outside, but you want to be fat in your soul. There, you don't want to have balanced blessings. (laughs) 
Will we learn from the lesson from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and say, by the grace of God, I will not eat what God says don't eat. I will not touch what God says don't touch. The tempter comes to us like he did to Eve with alluring temptations, telling us it doesn't matter what we eat or drink. He will tell young people that to be popular, they must eat like those around them, drink like those around them. He will tell businessmen that they must eat this food or drink this wine to be sociable and successful. But dear folk, there is nothing sociable about drinking. It's an antisocial activity. You don't drink socially. You drink antisocially. If you want to be a social drinker, drink water. God has a want ad for young people to determine they want to be like John the Baptist or Daniel. And he has a want ad for parents to raise Daniels and John the Baptist. Guarding what goes on the table of our families. God wants our children willing to stand up and stand out for Christ among their associates. When a salesman calls, he tries to get you to part with your money, and he tries to get you a, get a commitment that you're going to part with your money. When you give him that money, you don't see it again. It's, well, if I can get my billfold out, <laughs> my empty billfold, it's gone. But when we make a commitment for holiness, we make a commitment not to part with our money, but with every hurtful indulgence. We make a commitment to dispense with everything in our life that would injure us. Do you want to say, God, by your grace... Through your power. I am thankful that you gave me life, probationary life, to find out and test whether the laws that govern the universe are something that I want to live under all my life. Billions of years. If you want to be one of those who test God's laws by testing the author of those laws. Would you just bow your, your heads? Would you just tell God in, that that is your commitment to dispense with everything that injures you? When I went to medical school, I made a commitment. I said, Lord, anything that I find out in, in medical school that's harmful to me. It doesn't matter if I like to do it. If it's harmful, by your grace, I, I, I want to stop it. And if I find out that something is good for me, even if it's as poor tasting as cabbage, I will learn to do it.
Will you tell God that's a commitment similar to what you find? If you find out something in life that's harmful, you just won't do it. However much you might have liked it, however much society may push it or an encouragement, however much fun it might seem to be, you'll say, no, by the grace of God, I won't do that. Will you say that when you find out something, however hard, however unpopular, if it's good for you, you will do that for Jesus' sake? Would you raise your hand up and then down? Father in heaven, we're grateful that you've given us this opportunity. to live the life of the Bible, to be the Bible translators in our lives. That everything we do, whether we get up or whether we go to bed, whether we eat or whether we don't eat, we've made a decision that if we understand it's something that you've forbidden or something that's harmful, we will not do it. Father, may this be a commitment that you remind us of and you keep us, protect us from ourselves, protect us for you. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.